Good afternoon. It's Monday the 13th of July 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. My, I'm your host today, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, Patrick Henningsen. And via video link, we have David Scott from Northern Exposure. So uh, we'll get straight on. We've got a lot to cover today, Patrick. Uh, we'll start off with masks and, of course, the usual uh, confusion. Uh, Boris saying, I do think we need to be stricter in insisting people wear face coverings in confined spaces uh, where they're meeting people they don't normally meet. Uh, that was uh, earlier in the weekend. And then yesterday morning, Michael Gove comes out and says, I don't think mandatory, no. I think it's basically good manners, courtesy and consideration to wear a face mask if you're, for example, in a shop. Um, so um, the usual mixed message from uh, from the government. What is this good cop, bad cop between Boris and Gove, Mike? Uh, well, we're going to come on to that in a second. Uh, but uh, today, Boris has now said, because the, the criticism over the confusion, uh, he said that he's going to make a statement in the next few days. Uh, he said the scientific evaluation of face coverings and their importance in stopping aerosol droplets has been growing. Uh, so apparently the science is changing in front of our very eyes. Uh, but uh, David in Scotland, then uh, welcome to the program. Uh, but uh, Nippy decided that well, she was going to lead the way. Oh, we're leading the way. We don't have in Scotland good cop, bad cop. We have bad cop and worse cop, and uh, those would be Nicola Sturgeon and Hamza Youssef. And we're being threatened with all sorts of dire retribution if we do not wear a face nappy in uh, when we're shopping. So that's that's it's much more. It's much more clear. Hamza was, was tweeting about this today. It's much more clear in Scotland. Uh, you are being threatened and there will be retribution. Uh, well, this is uh, Susan Mikey from SAGE. Uh, and she's saying uh, this morning, we've had it made compulsory in public transport. I'd like to see England follow Scotland's example on buses, but that's not enough. Uh, she said, we're not a society that's used to wearing face masks or have done it in the past on a mass scale. So we need to get every single lever that we can to make this happen. Uh, we need a good mass education, persuasion and training campaign uh, because people do need to wear the right kinds of masks in the right way to make them maximally effective. Okay, well, of course, she's a behavioral scientist. She's one of the uh, behavioral team. And so not surprising perhaps uh, that she's pushing this in this way. But as Patrick asked, what's with the schizophrenic uh, the schizophrenic message. Well, perhaps we need to remind ourselves about the guidance for public health officers uh, and potentially infectious per persons. Uh, 9.1 saying individuals should always given, be given the opportunity to comply voluntarily with public health advice. But 9.2 says it's only at the stage where individuals do not comply with such advice that we would look to impose measures uh, under Schedule 21 parts one and two. And so, David, the mixed message then becomes absolutely clear uh, because, of course, uh, Michael Gove giving the public the opportunity to comply voluntarily with the public health advice. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, giving the other message because ultimately it's going to end in uh, a mandatory uh, imposition of the uh, of the rules. Yes, but of course, the rules have downsides as well, because we are aware of very serious health concerns over the restriction of oxygen and the effect that this has on the entire uh, human airframe, on organs, on causing cancers, on all sorts of problems. Um, so with that in mind, I did ask the Scottish Government on Friday uh, for a copy of the risk assessment, weighing up all of these risks and pros and cons. And a very nice lady said, just hold the line while I, while I get that for you. And there was a long, long pause. 
and, and no risk assessment. And I was then invited to send in an email and she would send it out and I'm still waiting. So if this ever arrives, we'll be sure to put this uh, on the call and let people see just what the risks in the view of the government actually are. Uh, well, we already know there's no such risk assessment in, the, in, in England, so I don't imagine there's likely to be one in Scotland, but, but uh, who knows, uh, since Scotland's leading the way, perhaps there is. Uh, but sticking with the behaviour change aspect of this, uh, here is uh, uh, Venki uh, Ramakrishnan from uh, the Royal Society. He's the president of the Royal Society, uh, saying it used to be quite normal to have a few drinks and drive home. It also used to be normal to drive without seatbelts. Uh, he said today both of those would be considered antisocial and not wearing face coverings in public should be regarded the same way. And so, Patrick, once again, we have the, the Spy B uh, documents that the UK column uh, highlighted back in March, April time. Uh, we're seeing the same uh, procedures being imposed uh, as they attempt to, to shame people into uh, uh, wearing or complying with the government's uh, uh, policy. How do we explain then, Mike, that so many different countries just over the channel in Europe uh, where there's no big push for people to wear masks, there's not this incessant push by government to get people to wear muzzles, uh, and yet there's no spikes of uh, COVID cases, there's no uh, mortality spikes or anything like that. Uh, the virus, or whenever, whatever it was, Mike, it's left the building in so many different countries. Why, why is the UK so incessant? in pushing this mask culture. Uh, we're also seeing the same problem in the United States as well. It's very strange. Is COVID behaving differently in different countries or are the people in the governments behaving differently? It's, uh, I think the people in the governments are behaving differently, but we've got to remember we are preparing for this coming winter uh, when the second wave will hit. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what it's all about. But uh, uh, what's, uh, what's happening in the United States? Well, this is an interesting story. Uh, some of you might have caught these reports uh, back uh, in May. This is an NBC News medical expert. This is one of their on-staff doctors that they would always call upon to give commentary on science and, of course, on the coronavirus crisis. So he, they spent weeks reporting on this person uh, being in bed, battling the coronavirus. Guess what? It turns out that he never actually had it. It's an absolutely incredible story. So NBC has been caught here. Dr. Joseph Fair, a virologist and an epidemiologist, uh, he believed he had the virus and appeared on, on the air numerous times to discuss his struggle with the illness in May and June. On Tuesday, the doctor admitted that he tested negative for the virus multiple times, but he had originally believed he had it regardless. Fair also tested negative uh, upon taking an antibody test as well. Incredible. So there he is in bed. This was the, you can imagine the news packages. I'm struggling here with COVID. Uh, you can go look at this online if you want to have a good laugh uh, at this. But here he is on Twitter in, in a kind of defending himself. This is a half-hearted walk back here at CureFinder. This is Dr. Fair. Uh, my undiagnosed suspected COVID illness from nearly two months ago remains an undiagnosed mystery <laughs> as a recent antibody test was negative. Uh, I had a myriad of COVID symptoms, though. He insists that he had the symptoms. Uh, and I was hospitalized in a COVID ward. So he was in a COVID ward. He had COVID symptoms. He's convinced he had COVID, and so is NBC and half of America. And then he was also treated, get this, for COVID-related comorbidities. How can you have a COVID-related comorbidity if you don't have COVID? I, 
Am I missing something? I don't have an MD or in medicine, Mike, but at least I know that much. Uh, no, this is this is a very key point, Patrick. Of course, because things are being attributed to COVID, uh, comorbidities being attributed to COVID, death being attributed to COVID, uh, which are not COVID related, and uh, of course. I think this is a perfect example of it. Again, and despite testing negative by nasal swab. So he admits that he never had it, but he's still trying to save face and convince people after that whole song and dance that maybe he might have it or at least have some kind of COVID compassion, some COVID compassion for Dr. Fair. And it really, you can see how this is being framed up. Take a look at this. This is the next part here. So this virologist is hospitalized. This is the original NBC, one of the NBC reports for COVID and believed he got it through his eyes. So listen to this. This is what he said on May 14th. I had a mask on. I had gloves on. I did my normal wipes routine. And I don't even want to go there, but, but obviously you can still get it through your eyes, says the, the good doctor, Fair. That's what he said on the Today Show from his hospital bed. And he said, and of course, I wasn't wearing goggles on the flight. Of course, you weren't wearing goggles. Uh, who wears goggles on a flight? So, so he's basically, you see what, how they're framing the narrative, Mike, here. He's basically suggesting uh, that he got it through his eyes. Uh, and so he, he, they, NBC originally said he had tested negative, but they buried that very, very deep in their reporting. Okay, So they basically just still ran with the gag. And what this leaves is the public with two basic false impressions. The first is that you have here an expert virologist, a doctor who took all the precautions necessary and still got the virus. That was the false impression that it gave uh, millions and millions of Americans through May and June. The second false impression here is that the tests can be actually be so untrustworthy that you can have multiple negative results but still have the coronavirus. That's a false impression, but it's being kind of hinted at mm -hmm. by NBC and the doctor here. Uh, and let's just continue here. So because Fair had protected his nose and his mouth during the flight, uh, he hadn't gone anywhere but to his home right after the flight. He was a good boy in that sense and started feeling ill a few days later. He suspected he might have contracted the virus through his eyes on the plane. It's the best guess I could give, says Dr. Joseph Fair, MD, the medical expert for NBC, caught basically. So what is this at the end of the day? We have to ask our panel, is, is fake news? So the verdict has been rendered. Uh, absolutely. Uh, well, at the weekend, well, last weekend, we highlighted this uh, article from uh, Peter Hitchens. We're all turned from normal human beings into muzzle masochists. Well, he's followed up this weekend with forget face masks and fear. Let's relax and accept the risk. Uh, and what he's basically arguing for here is that, that those of us, if, the, if we feel that uh, masks are really inappropriate, we shouldn't be using them, that we should simply uh, behave in the way that, that, uh, that, that you know, we get on with our lives. And he's hoping that uh, others can be encouraged to do the same. Uh, so he's saying here, when this happens, uh, all the footling palaver of visors, muzzles, plastic screens, incessant obsessive use of hand sanitizer and social distancing will be abandoned. So he's hoping that if we, uh, if if people stand up and say we're not having this, uh, that some of the uh, organisations that we interact with on a daily basis, sh shops, supermarkets, pubs, clubs, and so on, uh, will start to do the same. Uh, that perhaps some businesses will take advantage of this. For example, 
and hire staff that are willing or that, that feel the same way, that are more relaxed about the situation than others, and perhaps they'll provide special uh, sessions in, in pubs and clubs and, and so on for people that feel that way and other sessions for people that don't and he's basically saying he's not going to criticize those people but let the people that, that want to wear the masks get on with it and let the rest get on with their lives so he's attempting to find a find a way through this um, I'm not sure that that uh, it's pretty clear that government isn't interested in finding a way through it they want to impose you could have a situation where you could say sign a, a liability waiver uh, before that, you That's exactly in. what he's suggesting. And, yeah. and so that's that's basically yeah taking a common sense approach. Now the contrarian point of view to that, the establishment point of view, is going to say, Mike, that's not good enough. That's not good enough because the virus is contagious, and it's not just about you. We need to do it to protect the spread um, and to protect the vulnerable, basically, because everybody might at some point be in contact with someone who's vulnerable. Okay, this basically ignores the wider context of the argument, which is how deadly is this virus? What is the true infection fatality rate for coronavirus or this alleged uh, fatality rate for this coronavirus? That's the big question. No one's talking about that. But this came up. This is an interesting story here. Uh, the CDC finally confirms what looks like a remarkably low coronavirus death rate. And where's the media? This is up at Green Med Info, Sirege's website here. And uh, let's take a closer look at some of the findings here. So basically, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in America, finally, after how many months now? Four months? They finally attempted to offer a real estimate of the overall death rate for COVID-19. And here's some of the findings here in this article. Most likely scenario, on average, Mike, uh, the number is a 0 0.26, 0.26 percent infection fatality rate or death rate okay so that's approximately what two two and a half people out of a thousand of those infected something like that now that's not the true number but that's the best guesstimate that they're offering for a most likely scenario officials estimate uh, a 0 0.4 0.4 percent fatality rate among those who are symptomatic so if you have sim symptoms um, four in a thousand uh, may, according to these estimates, may uh, die from the coronavirus or something related to it. There's a whole other segue in terms of, you know, dying with COVID or dying from COVID. We won't go there for now. Let's just take these numbers on face value. This is interesting. 35% of the infected are asymptomatic. Okay, so that's an uh, interesting number. Now, and also in this article, it, it details how a Canadian team, and this is what's important when we're talking about the previous slides, Mike, uh, the Canadian team estimates individual rate of death from COVID-19 for people under the age of 65 uh, is approximately, uh, here's six uh, per million or 0.0006%, one in 166,666. So roughly the equivalent of the risk of dying from a motor vehicle accident uh, during the same time period. So. That's the true infection fatality rate according to the CDC. The media should be all over this story. And it's good news. It's great news. It means it's not as deadly as was previously sold to the public by the World Health Organization and every, just about everybody else and every politician. This is good news. We should be popping champagne corks, right? Uh, Rishi Sunak should be giving vouchers for drinks, drinks on a 
Brings on the state. This is great news. Let's celebrate. We'll be coming on to that in a second. David, thoughts? Well, it's very clear that there is no risk if you're under 60 and healthy. It's just nothing. There's, 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 you spend, you have as you have a greater risk driving to the supermarket than you do walking around the supermarket without a mask. There is no valid reason for these precautions, and yet they're being pushed. I see here um, Gateshead NHS are saying we've had a tough few months. Please don't make it harder for us because you know TikTok videos don't make themselves. Drink responsibly, save the NHS. So the idea that your your behaviour must be modified to save the NHS has now been rolled out across lots of non-COVID related stuff because the NHS is so fragile and you need to uh, be you need to do everything responsibly to save the NHS. Uh, Nicola incidentally has said we're wearing masks in Scotland for the foreseeable future, but she doesn't think it's permanent. Yes, well, I, I think it is. But anyway, let's move on. Uh, Patrick, uh, from the other side of the Atlantic, but it, it does feed nicely into where we're going with, uh, with local lockdowns and so on. Florida breaks U.S. coronavirus record for most, most new cases in a day. It's all about cases. It's all about cases. So it's cases, 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 and it is surge, spike, hotspot, outbreak. This is how the U.S. media is treating this now. Do you notice three months ago, as we remarked before, it was deaths, deaths, deaths. Now it's cases, cases, cases. Now this is interesting, and this will give you a hint as to where we're going next. So they're basically saying that crisis is now peaking again. This is the second wave. Uh, no one's really uh, putting this in proper context. In other words, the U.S. are conducting something like, like six, over 600,000 new tests per week. Okay, So there, there are going to be more surges in cases or people testing positive for coronavirus. The question then is not how many cases there are, if there's a real emergency or a crisis, you know, what are the fatalities? Are those peaking as well? Well, let's look at this. This is an interesting uh, detail here. This is from John Solomon's website here. The data suggests Florida's record-breaking coronavirus days may have been inflated by as much as 30%. So they're saying the numbers have been inflated here. The deaths in the state have remained largely flat. That's an important point uh, over the same period of time, leaving experts struggling to explain why surging casing, cases uh, rates have not resulted in an uptick in mortality. Very key point. Yes. Now, one possibility, according to the data provided by the state itself, is that the new case numbers regularly posted by Florida health officials have been significantly inflated in recent weeks, and they go on to crunch the numbers a little bit on that. So that's important in terms of framing. I think we're seeing similar things happening uh, in the UK with the sort of spikes and local lockdown fears and things like this. Uh, but the other thing to say on this, of course, is we've got to keep in mind uh, the Italian position that, that, that COVID is now what they described as clinically dead. Uh, mm. So the, you know, people have developed a certain level of immunity already. Uh, and so there may be positive uh, tests out there, but what, what are those individuals' immune systems doing to react to that, uh, that infection? Uh, and so the effect on them as individuals is now much lower compared to previously. 
and therefore they're not going to become hospital cases. So the chances of a, a new spike in, in uh, demand for, for intensive care beds reduces over time. This is clearly feeding into the, the vaccine campaign, right? basically. So that, and this idea that you can't have immunity for very long, uh, that your antibodies will fall away, uh, depending on the person after a few months or whatever. Therefore, the, the, it increases the imperative for a mandatory vaccine or a voluntary vaccine uh, for COVID-19. So this feeds, as you said, Mike, very nicely into the local picture here uh, in the UK. Now, this is a headline from a few weeks ago, but we thought it was very informative. Let's flag up some of the uh, statements and findings in this uh, article here. Suffolk coronavirus infection rate, uh, one of the lowest in England. And let's look at this report a little bit closer. We'll call this COVID local. Public Health England reports that for Suffolk, uh, 0.9 positive test results per 100,000 people. That's you know roughly one in 100,000 testing positive for mm -hmm. COVID. Not much going on there. Would you say that's COVID-free? Largely. Largely COVID-free. Basically nothing really happening. Now out of the 150 upper tier local authorities, five of those authorities have zero cases. Okay, and Norfolk's rate is an example, 1.6 per 100,000, Essex uh, 3.5 per 100,000, Cambridgeshire 3.7 per, per 100,000. Well, I'm not going to go to Cambridgeshire then. Yeah, it's very dangerous yeah. in Cambridge compared to Suffolk, as you can see. There's two more people that have uh, tested positive for COVID. Now, Leicester apparently has the highest infection rate. This was a two weeks ago uh, of these local authorities at 141.3 per 100,000 testing positive for COVID. Now, it doesn't obviously say in any of these numbers what the uh, hospitalization rate is, if there's any spike in mortality. I think it doesn't say it because there's not much happening mm. in those two columns. So it's all about cases, cases, cases. So recorded coronavirus cases in Suffolk, this is interesting, jumped by 1,034 just one day after tests undertaken by commercial companies were included in the official figures. So this is this pillar one and pillar two. Pillar one uh, numbers are just the uh, public sector testing. Pillar two is the private sector testing. And people might remember a couple of weeks ago that local authorities were complaining. Uh, we reported this that local authorities were complaining that the government wasn't giving them the pillar two case numbers. They were keeping them to themselves. Very quickly, uh, a couple of days later, the government then started publicizing the pillar two cases. And of course, this allowed the narrative to build that suddenly there's been this massive spike in new cases again. Yeah, again, artificially inflated or amplified uh, through the process of uh, bureaucracy. And lastly, this is also very key, and I want to get your comment and perhaps David's comment on this. PHE has also made changes to its reporting methods. So to remove any cases that may have been counted more than once, they're subtly admitting that they were double counting. How long have they been doing that for? Well, they've been doing that from the beginning, David, uh, and and clearly, uh, though with with the pillar two numbers being included, maybe they don't feel they need to do that anymore. I don't know. So right from the horse's mouth, it's incredible. Yes, uh, David, have you any thoughts? Well, it's all based on testing and how reliable is the testing? And everything we know about it is it's not diagnostic and it's not reliable at all, and it's hugely prone to false positives because it essentially. Um, concentrates and concentrates um, until they find something. Um, and we're not even sure what we're finding. We're not even sure if we've got a unique disease because it's never been isolated. The, the, the questions are everywhere. The answers are nowhere. 
and yet the narrative goes sailing merrily on as though we have complete confidence in the science and um, it, we're all expected to ignore all of the concerns, not ask questions, not think for ourselves, but simply obey. Um, well, it, it gets better because uh, Matt Hancock uh, was writing in the Telegraph yesterday. Uh, and of course, it's not just about testing, it's also about tracing. Um, so by acting collectively to test and trace, uh, we will keep COVID cornered, he said. Uh, I, I find it hard to keep a straight face here. So what is he saying? Uh, well, here we go. It has been a real thrill to see so many of the experiences that brighten our lives returning to the UK over the past few weeks. Uh, he said uh, this careful restoration of our national life has only been possible due to our shared success in slowing the spread of the virus. We protected the NHS in the peak. Yes, you protected the NHS by killing lots of people. And I think we're in a position to say that now. Uh, there's the lockdown line uh, and the excess mortality after the lockdown line. And, you know, the point that we've been making, Patrick, is that these are lockdown deaths. And of course, the mortality, the weekly all-cause mortality in England and Wales in the first part of the year before the lockdown was below the five-year average. Uh, the excess mortality came after the five-year average. So in order to protect the excess death, uh, protect the NHS, uh, and he's very proud that they protected the NHS, uh, they did that by killing people. They, they protected it and shut it down uh, uh, absolutely, at the same time. Absolutely, yeah. they shut it down. Uh, so uh, he went on to say, and now we can take more targeted local action as less national lockdown and less national lockdown to restore the freedom of the majority while controlling the virus wherever we can find it. Uh, and of course, this is exactly what was uh, echoed in the uh, guidance for public health officers. Implementation of your powers will be done at a local level, coordinating with local resilience partners in accordance with local arrangements. Uh, he went on to say, uh, that uh, each week there are over a hundred local actions taken across the country. Some of these will make the news, but many more are swiftly and silently dealt with. Swiftly and silently dealt with this, perhaps in the context of those uh, uh, guidance for public health officers uh, should be cause for concern because nothing should be happening uh, silently here. If the person is not willing to comply voluntarily, a PHO should first have a conversation. If the person is still not compliant, then should invoke the powers conferred on them. Uh, we've mentioned this already, the fact that uh, everything's voluntary except when it isn't. But the public health officers may direct, remove or request a constable to remove an individual to a place suitable for screening and assessment. Uh, David, in my opinion, this should never happen quietly. Indeed not, but quiet is where we're going. Um, I've I got a report here, um, official guidance to NHS staff, no media is allowed on site. Uh, staff are not allowed to talk to any journalists. Uh, there is to be strict information governance. Staff must refrain from commenting or posting on social media. They must report any inaccurate statements to the comms team. Personal social media will be monitored. Right. The, the, the silence is everywhere. This is uh, the, the power uh, of the largest employer in the UK is going to be used to make sure that the information coming out of the NHS is uh, in accordance with the government line and any other information will be silenced. Just a note on the science, Mike. So Matt Hancock is saying we need to you know, implement these local measures 
We need to ramp up contact tracing. It's because of this that we're going to corner the virus. We just showed you a number of local authorities, Mike, where there is, they're COVID-free. Uh, did that have anything to do with contact tracing or masks or anything else? No. no, they don't. They follow the exact same trajectory that you're seeing around the world in other countries, which is that this virus or the, the, the infections are seasonal, and we see a, a peak in hospitalizations in April, a peak in deaths in April, and it's been tailing off ever since. But for some reason, the United States and the UK, Coroni behaves differently in the US and the UK. I can't figure it out. It's, it's a source of confusion. Absolutely. Well, let's move uh, to Europe. And uh, what's Serbia? What's going on there? Well, uh, Serbia had a, a, a spike in cases, Mike. They had 300 cases and something like 15 deaths attributed to COVID. And the government went to impose curfews and basically to reimpose lockdown. And what happened here was amazing. Tens of thousands of people stormed uh, the government buildings in Belgrade and protests uh, broke out. It was huge. And the government eventually caves to public pressure and drops its plans for curfews and reimposing lockdown after a few days of sustained protests. So that's really how it's done. Now, this is a kind of a tale of two countries. That's how it played out in Serbia. And just over the Irish Sea, Mike, uh, we're seeing something very strange happening that's kind of the opposite, you could say, the antithesis of this. Um, Ireland is now imposing uh, quarantine for some reason. Now, we don't know if there's any any spike or anything like that. So basically what they're saying in Ireland, Mike, correct me if I've misinterpreted this, but there's no COVID, but we might as well run a quarantine anyway. Well, well, what they're saying is that they want to t try to prevent uh, a second uh, wave coming. So this is all about what might happen in the future. Amazing. Right. But we're not quarantining people coming from Ireland into the, into the UK. But uh, anybody going from the UK into Ireland is going to be quarantined. Now, this is, uh, well, this is in contrary to the notions of the common travel area, but this is what they've decided to do. And it's reinforcing this notion of local and regional uh, responses. So uh, it leaves you in the position where you don't know whether it's safe to travel. You could travel to any country uh, where there's uh, apparently uh, measures in place to, 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 to make travel possible. Uh, but you get there and find that you're suddenly locked down uh, and you can't move. And of course, you're not going to get any insurance, any travel insurance to cover this eventuality because uh, no travel insurance company is covering COVID related risk. Um, so effectively, what we're seeing, because there's so, so much uncertainty in, in Europe, in Ireland, in, in the UK, even uh, even David, I hear that uh, Nicola Sturgeon was suggesting that uh, anybody traveling to Scotland from England may be forced to quarantine. Um, at least she's, she's, she's assessing the possibility that she might make this rule. Uh, it gets to the ridiculous position where you actually don't know whether it's safe to travel or not. Uh, and this looks to me very much like a massive psychological operation to, to just prevent people from leaving their own localities. Yes, and of course, Nicola's found a way to politicise it to try and separate Scotland from England and create the impression that we're two separate countries and uh, to start to inconvenience people and break up the uh, the links that, that uh, bind us together. Yes. So it, 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 it's falling naturally into her uh, particular political preferences. But simply the the desire to control people and the, the clear pl pleasure that the Scottish government is having 
um, from seeing the amount of control they're having over the Scottish people and seeing the obedience is uh, is very pleasing to them because of their tendency to want a, 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 an authoritarian type government. Mm. And, and I mind you, if you look at the PHO, uh, PHO guidelines, Mike, that you showed earlier, um, it, they have the power to detain or to keep somebody if they're suspected of coming from an infected area. So like you said, you could end up in a local lockdown and then on return to the UK, mm -hmm. uh, you will then be um, you know, interrogated essentially through the medical martial law protocols for being in an infected area because obviously they're looking at the breakouts around Europe or around the UK. So where does it end at any point? And this is inching more and more towards a Chinese style model of com fully automated uh, medical mass surveillance, which is the, the system that, that China has. But, um, you know, this also comes at a time, all of these uh, announcements, Mike, are coming at a time where the UK just said they were relaxing uh, travel uh, with some 50-odd countries or more than that around the world. So mixed messages, total confusion, nobody can make any plans. How can you put any money aside? How could you plan uh, to travel for business or holiday well, in this type of environment. You can't. Uh, so what's going on with uh, with pubs, Patrick? Well, this is a pub PEE, let's call it. So this is COVID culture. So it, as you know, different uh, places are enforcing this in different ways. There are COVID cops now that have been deputized uh, in high-vis jackets and they mull around, but they're, they're kind of taking a very casual approach in Devon and Cornwall, I think, having trouble getting too uh, authoritarian. But, you know, the result of this, Mike, is Caroni is still confused. He's more confused than ever. He doesn't know uh, what's going on in pubs or restaurants. He's totally confused. The government's saying one thing. He doesn't know whether he can set up shop and get around and, you know, make friends, so to speak. This is why Caroni hangs out in pubs, to make friends and to get to know people. So that's just not not good for him. So. Where does this confusion lead us, Mike? I mean, there's a lot of funny things going on in different establishments uh, around the country with regards to coping with COVID. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so, well, here is one example. Cornwall Live, Cornwall Pub installs electric fence at the bar. And this is, I'm presuming it's a joke. He says, the barman says, or the owner of the pub says that uh, he only switches it on occasionally. Uh, but there you have a picture from uh, Cornwall Live of the electric fence uh, running along the front of the pub. Uh, and of course, what is the message here, Patrick? The message is that uh, the cattle are being uh, kept, you know, to one side. They have to be kept inside the pub. They can't get too close to the bar. Is that being powered by a car battery? It looks like it, yes. yes. That is pretty crude. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, treating people like cattle, cattle to be vaccinated, so, so uh, electric I thought, fences. Absolutely. So I thought it was quite interesting that, 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 that this idea is being put forward. We're cattle, we need an electric fence. Uh, because, of course, today is the day that the government has, uh, or that pubs and clubs and, and places can uh, can ask HMRC for permission to, to provide the, uh, uh, the, the, the £10 voucher for people who are buying food and non-alcoholic drink in various pubs, restaurants, and so on. Um, so basically, these people, pubs have to, to, to register with, uh, with HMRC for this, and the, this money will be automatically deducted from your bill. But if you look closely at that picture, this is the government's image that they chose to uh, put with the press release. Uh, the young lady there uh, has a ring in her nose, 
uh, like cattle. Um, and uh, so, again, we're being fed the uh, subliminal message that we are cattle. Please tell me that logo is not a government-issued logo. Uh, that is a government-issued logo, yes, yes. So the government's actually sitting there and designing um, cheap diner takeaway graphics. Yes. Really. David, what do you make of all this? It's very surprising. It's getting more and more bizarre. I, I did catch, I'm sure you saw this, the, the um, US government deficit for June. It's $863 billion in a month. That's more than the whole of 2018 in a month. Right? This, this, is, this is terminal ground contact. This is the death of the economy. And, and nobody, nobody's caring. We're going, to have, we're going to have press conferences about you should wear a mask, and, and, and you should, but you should go to the pub, and you should have some, um, some food, but, but, but not alcohol. Protect the NHS. All of this noise as really important things are going horribly wrong, and no one's discussing it. Uh, absolutely. We're, we're debasing the value of our, our, our currency, and that penny won't drop, no pun intended, until probably next year. Yeah. And so those people who are cheering for lockdown now, people who are on uh, state employees, for instance, they're on the state payroll, they're on the government payroll, they're on select corporate payrolls, they're, they're not worried, it hasn't hurt them directly. The values of their properties haven't plummeted yet, or things like this. But everybody will feel this because if the inflationary bubble pops next year in 2021 in the spring or the summer everybody's going to be taking a 20 percent haircut basically on everything and we could be in an inflationary cycle it's very possible uh, absolutely uh, okay now uh, just one more thank you a huge thank you to everybody who's contributed to Ian R. Crane's uh, crowdfunder uh, that's now over £31,000, £31,415. That's a spectacular effort, Patrick. This is amazing. Uh, um, thank you to everybody who have responded to this. And again, this is uh, a great, great thing for Ian because it's allowing him to uh, seek and get the, the treatment that he wants and needs. Mm -hmm. Uh, in this very difficult time. So thank you, everybody, who, who chipped into this effort. Uh, now, David, uh, spectacular news here because this uh, is just uh, Iceland all over again. So the uh, mail headline this morning, councils prepare massive cuts in jobs and services after losing cash on investments in airports, cinemas and offices hit by the COVID pandemic. And what we have at heart here, though, is the fact that there is no possibility for councils or anybody, in fact, right down to individuals to put their money anywhere uh, where there's any possibility of earning any interest because, of course, uh, we're in the world of negative interest rates. And so as a result, people are forced to make speculative investments. Uh, now, the councils did that uh, with Iceland and it went very badly for them. They seem to have fallen into the same trap once again and it's gone badly for them once again. So data from the Institute for Fiscal Studies suggests that more than 30 local authorities uh, now obtain a quarter of their annual income from commercial investments. Uh, and most of those have gone badly wrong as a result of COVID-19. When are these organizations going to learn their lesson? Never, it would seem. The, the first case of this was uh, the Western Isles Council, who put all of the money in a very secure organization called the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which, of course, was a CIA front and uh, money laundering operation and famously went fut. And they lost a vast amount 
of uh, their ratepayers, uh, taxpayers' money, and uh, it was there was some um, distress within the council for some years trying to trying to fill that hole. Uh, I'm also a little confused. I thought councils were sort of living hand to mouth. Why are we doing investments? Because presumably this is only for a few months because it's it's to take out the, the peaks and troughs. Or are we saying that the, the councils have got lots of excess funds which they're investing in the long term? Uh, well, those yeah. excess funds, David, are, of course, the uh, reserves that they have um, for pensions. And so actually this is probably going to be the pension fund that has gone to hell at this point. Um, because uh, these untouchable reserves that 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 councils have are mainly uh, the pension scheme, so this is not good news for people. No, in fact, if anyone is kind of like my age or younger, I I wouldn't be necessarily planning on retiring and having a pension. Uh, if you look at what all of the pension funds are being built on, including the government one, which is built on future taxpayer income. What taxes? Um, no, well, yeah, exactly. None of this seems sound anymore. None of it seems secure. Um, I would think the, the thing to do is make sure you can keep working uh, until you drop. That sounds like a safer plan because retirement, I'm not sure we're going to see an awful lot of that. No. Well, that was that was the whole point with uh, before with retirement funds is you have you know your high risk bucket and you have your low risk bucket and of course where you want to put your retirement funds is in the long term low risk bucket. But what is what is low risk now? This is the problem. So this is the question. So if there's no low risk investments and everything is high risk, but actually the councils are putting it in known high risk buckets, yeah. they are gambling with people's. Uh, Council tax, basically. Absolutely. Amazing. Absolutely. Amazing. Uh, right. Well, um, good news, everyone, uh, because Brexit's back on the table. Today, the government is uh, launching a major new public information campaign. They're not doing anything. They're just uh, launching a public information campaign. The campaign is called The UK's New Start. Let's get going. Uh, and uh, they have created this fantastic website, The UK Transition. It says the UK has left the EU and the transition period after Brexit comes to an end this year. Take action now to get ready for the new rules from January 2021. And with a new website and a glossy new campaign comes a glossy new slogan. And it is this, check, change, go. Uh, so we're not uh, saving the NHS and protecting lives. We're now checking, changing and going. Uh, and uh, so this campaign is going to run uh, across the full range of communications channels, including TV, advertising and radio. So we're going to we're going to provide the foundations for the mainstream press by making sure there's plenty of advertising going on. Uh, so there's going to be TV, radio, uh, digital print, uh, direct channels such as tech messages, text messages and and webinars. Um, and uh, of course, this is all about the fact that we are notionally leaving the EU at the end of the year. Now, what I think is really going on is this is an attempt to restart the type of angst that we saw in the six months running up to Brexit Day on the 31st of January. We've got to get this back into people's minds again. There is a massive potential of Britain leaving without a deal because although there are ongoing negotiations for our future relationship, those seem to have stalled. Uh, and so we're going to be heading back into the uh, old uh, narrative that we're that we're going to be leaving 
collapse, collapsing out of the EU with a no deal. And uh, we need to get people wound up about that. Uh, but, well, what is actually going on? Uh, well, because they have announced now, David, a £750 million investment in the UK borders. This is going to include infrastructure. It's going to include 500 new jobs. Uh, it's going to make sure that uh, customs and, and uh, the borders are absolutely fit for purpose as we leave the EU. Um, and, uh, uh, and, well, that's going to cost us uh, £750 million. Silence. Well, I, mean, good... I, think, I think that's quite appropriate response. <laughs> no, it's a very good thing too because because we'll come to borders maybe later in the programme. But but we we're seeing that there's still a, a, an almost endless um, supply of of people coming in illegally to the country. So that one of the things the government should be doing, if it's if it's fit for anything at all, is actually stopping that and managing the borders. Uh, I did like change. Sorry, check, change, go. I thought that was beautiful because it's it's basically the the, the UDA loop, um, observe, orientate, decide, act, without the decide because you don't decide, you just obey, right? You don't. There's no decision for you to make anymore. So it's, it's just repeated the UDA loop, but they've left out the decide because you don't have a decision to make. There is no choice. Uh, it's the government, and you just do what you're told. So I I, I thought that was quite funny. Um, yeah, let, let's see what they do with the borders, because we've been talking about porous borders in this country for, what, 25 years? And they never seem to get any less porous. And the, the, the Conservatives obviously beat the drum on this because it, it's, it's good for their, uh, you know, their political position and, and, and voting base. But nothing ever changes. Will it now? We'll see. Well, maybe coronavirus might solve the uh, backstop issue for Ireland. <laughs> It's always a possibility. <laughs> the way it's going. Uh, now, David, uh, what's going on in Turkey? Well, I, I wanted to highlight this. This is a this is a story uh, that's, that some people may have, might have noticed concerning the Hagia Sophia. So this is a cathedral in Latterly Mosque in Istanbul. Right? It was built uh, 532, and it is vast. It is the, it was the most important cathedral in in the whole of the Christian world outside of Jerusalem for about a thousand years. Um, it's it, it's uh, a, a huge structure made out of domes and semi-domes, all using just your know, masonry and compression, and it's the size roughly of the Albert Hall. It's about 80 meters long, 30 meters wide, uh, 50 odd meters high to the top of the dome, about 180 feet. Um, a simply vast structure in a seismically active zone. There's been repairs over the centuries uh, due to earthquake damage, and um, when. Uh, uh, when Constantinople was taken by 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 the Turks uh, and became Istanbul, it was changed into a mosque. When Turkey wo went towards a more secular society under Ataturk, it stopped being a mosque and became a museum, and it's now a world heritage site. Uh, now Erdogan has just announced that it's going back into a mosque, and this this was an, announced and then immediately action. So the, the call to prayer was being heard from those minarets within a day of the announcement. So it's a, it's a real push to establish, to Islamatize Turkey. So the, the last elements of, of the secular Turkey of, of, uh, of Ataturk has been swept away. And it's also a major point of contention between the Islamic world and and the and what you might term Christendom, both East and West. So here you see the BBC are reporting that the, the, the Pope is unhappy 
uh, Pope Francis says he's pained by the Turkey decision. Uh, and they also go on to say that uh, the Turkish court annulled the site's museum status, um, saying its use as anything other than a mosque was not possible legally. So we're seeing the legal manipulation of things to, uh, to achieve a political effect. Um, and uh, we also see here in this, this other comment from the BBC, one of Turkey's most famous authors, uh, Orhan Pamuk, told the BBC that the decision would take away the pride that some Turks felt in being a secular Muslim nation. There are millions of secular Turks like me who are crying against this, but their voices are not heard. And there are one or two um, noticeable voices in the Islamic religious world who are crying out against this. But generally, the, the, the response in Islam is one of applause and, and delight that this has been returned to a mosque. And I'm just highlighting that it's, it's both a, a sign of the increasing Islamification of Turkey, the change in Turkish society, and also a, a, a point of potential conflict between East and West, between the Islamic world and Europe uh, at this very sensitive uh, geopolitical point. Patrick. Yeah, this is no surprise here. This is just the continuation of a policy I would uh, call, and uh, one of the best scholars in this area has, has a good volume of work up at 21st Century Wire. His name is Dr. Jan Aramton, and I would call this this the Sunnification of of Turkey or New Turkey, as it's called. And as David rightly pointed out, uh, this transition away from a secular uh, uh, Kemalist republic, uh, as it was after the Ottoman Empire, and and now into a more Sharia compliant New Turkey. And there's so many different um, signals of this that have been uh, unfolding over the last few years. And it's happening pretty much under the radar of the Western media. And you, you'd be pained to find any um, you know, international geopolitical analysts in the United States that could really articulate um, how this has been going on. And a lot of that is because of Turkey's membership in NATO mm -hmm. and also its vetting and courting of the European Union as well. And the, the media and the international community still brand it as a NATO ally, so therefore it's westernized. But in fact, it's going in the other direction. And one of the reasons for that, Mike, is the demographics have changed drastically in Turkey in terms of the birth rate, whereas the conservative Islamic vote used to be a rural uh, phenomenon. And then in recent years, through various through globalization and other things, uh, Muslims have moved, or more pious Muslims have moved into the cities. And of course, that's changed the demographics and allowed for the resurgence of uh, more of an Islamic society. That's where uh, Tayyip Erdogan has come from, this phenomenon as well. That's his rise to power. The current mayor of Istanbul as well will probably most likely follow in the footsteps of Erdogan. He comes from the same uh, pedigree, more or less, of this trend. Mm -hmm. So really, they, in terms of the birth rate and in terms of the migration to the cities where the political power is concentrated, secular Turkey is, uh, is outnumbered. It's not that there aren't people who are Kemalists or who are secular, who follow the uh, values of the old republic in Turkey. It's just that they are very much outnumbered now and increasingly so uh, as the years go on. So this is an important thing that some people may or may not acknowledge right now, but it has a potential to really change the region. It's also neo-Ottomanism. Turkey also wants to regain its power as the custodians of Islam in the Middle East and also to uh, project their power. They're now in Libya, very active uh, in, in Libya in the civil war that's going on right now. They've exported their 
military and their troops there. They're also in the Sudan. They're in Somalia. They're in parts of Africa. They're in Qatar. They have troops in Iraq. So Turkey is a country that wants to expand its influence and has the economic power, has the human resources to do that. Uh, David, just very, very briefly, if we could, last week uh, we mentioned on the news that uh, uh, at, uh, that there was a, an EU defence uh, event happening in the United States. Um, and subsequent to that, then a conversation you and I had, you, or well, uh, as part of the conversation for that event, uh, the, the EU representatives were basically saying, uh, you know, we, we can't deal with the eastern neighbourhood on our own. We need NATO support for that because Russia is too big a potential enemy to deal with on our own. But we are very interested in the southern neighbourhood. I mean, just very briefly, where do you think this leaves the whole uh, EU project and the southern neighbourhood expansionism? It leaves it with uh, a, a likely conflict with Turkey. Right? The southern neighbourhood, Turkey, Turkey's got a strange uh, position because it's still coloured in as a possible ascension state to join the EU. Now, that's not going to happen. Um, and the southern neighbourhood goes from Morocco to Syria, includes Lebanon, includes Israel, uh, includes the whole of North Africa. So there's plenty of mischief that the EU can get up to in that area. And of course, we've had no such such uh, luminaries as Ursula von der Leyen and Tony Blair talking about the need to have a European military uh, in in North Africa to deal with the potential immigration from the Sahel and stabilise the whole the whole of the northern half of Africa. So that's where they want to go, um, but they seem to have only problems in delivering that. I suspect we're going to see some significant changes in their policy to make this more possible and with those uh, more conflict. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, let's uh, just quickly end on, on this one. David, what is going on in Ireland? Well, I thought we would mention this because no one else did. This didn't appear on RTE or in any of the main Irish newspapers. This is a thing called March for Innocence. And it was a march by uh, some people in Ireland in a protest outside the Doyle um, against the ongoing sexualization of Irish children and against the, the appointment of a new children's minister who has uh, links to Peter Tatchell and his, it, who has tweeted out in support of Peter Tatchell, who is, of course, uh, notorious for making comments in support of paedophilia. Uh, the, the most famous one is this. Uh, Peter Tatchell said, wrote in a newspaper, whilst it may be impossible to condone paedophilia, it is time society acknowledge the truth that not all sex involving children is unwanted, abuses, abusive and harmful. So that's the viewpoint that Tatchell put out. The people in Ireland saw this link um, to their new uh, children's minister uh, and, and, and had a protest. And there was a counter protest. There's more on that in just a moment. Um, we've got here the We Flee writing some time ago about uh, about the creeping normalization of paedophilia. And he describes uh, an ex uh, a case where he was debating uh, some time ago, 20 years ago, uh, the issue of same-sex adoption in Aberdeen. He got into a discussion with a group of men who described themselves as tactual followers. In the course of that discussion, he asked him about the age of consent for homosexuality, which was then 18. Um, and they told them that not only did they approve of Tatchell's call to have it lowered to 14, but they did not think there should be an age of consent at all. They told me that if they were babysitting any children, or my children, 
uh, who were at the time aged eight and six, they would teach them to experiment sexually. So you're, you're seeing in, in the left and in the LGBT community a, a hugely radical and dangerous move against children. And the people in Ireland uh, went out in the street to complain, to protest about this. Now, Roderick O'Gorman, the, the new uh, children's minister, uh, eventually commented and, and he said um, that these accusations that he had um, uh, supported Tatchell's viewpoints are rooted in homophobia stoked by anonymous far-right Twitter accounts. So this, this is, this is a, a politician from the, the, the Green Party, so far-left party, playing the standard um, uh, the standard response that it's homophobia, it's bigotry, it's the far right, it's, it, it's it's literally Nazis who are opposing his views. To oppose his views, you must be literally a Nazi. Uh, now, here's a, a paper with Nyon called The Liberal pointing out, um, not only reporting, a small paper, not only reporting on the protest, but pointing out that Roderick O'Gorman, the new children's minister, uh, retweeted this image of, well, shall we say, Satanist-style child abuse and murder. That's what the image is of. Now, why is the children's minister, the man who's now children's minister, retweeting that? I think there are some genuine concerns. Um, the the counter-protests, sort of small Antifa-type counter-protests, were calling the people protesting fascists and Nazis and, and all of these things. So this is this is the an example of the split within the West. You have got the left is now so extreme that any borders on any and any limits on any human behaviour become literally Hitler, literally Nazis, and then you've got a, an uncertain but but burgeoning movement against that that are starting to gather around either religion or nationality um, or simply their love for their children. To, to resist it. And I, I thought it was actually an important event and it should have been reported on. And the fact that it was it was ignored by the mainstream Irish media it actually illustrates part of the problem. Uh, absolutely. Um, okay, look, we will have to leave it there for now because we're well over time. Uh, thank you much, very much for joining us. David, thank you for joining us, Patrick, and thank you. Uh, for joining us. Uh, we will be back at the same time as usual on Wednesday. Brian will be back in the studio uh, and we will see you then. Bye-bye.